listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, this episode is dropping the week of Thanksgiving, which feels like the official start of the end of the calendar year holidays, which can be a bit of, well, a mess, especially when you're grieving. If you're needing ideas for how to support yourself, the people you work with, or friends and family, we're hosting a webinar on Thursday, December 7th. You can learn more about it and sign up at our website, www.dougy.org. So last week, my dog, Captain, got really sick. He's 14, so any kind of sick feels like it can get real dire real fast. Logically, I get that working in this field does not grant me immunity to having my own emotions. And yet, emotionally, I still really, really, really want that to be true. He's doing better this week, but when things were at their worst, I kept saying to myself, I don't know how to do this. And by this, I meant, what am I going to do if he dies? It was a real bummer, to be honest, because like I said, I've spent 20 plus years watching people do it. And by it, I mean finding ways to keep living after someone or a pet or something they don't think they can live without dies. So how come I found myself facing the same doubt and fear at the edge of the unknown that the people I work with do? I don't know for sure, but I think it's because there's really no way to predict with any kind of certainty how grief is going to make itself at home in our lives. Will it sneak in slowly and quietly? Will it crash on through, taking out everything in its path? Will it sound alarms in multiple rooms? Will it take up residence under our beds, coming out only when things slow down and get quiet at night? It's true that, as people and as a field, we do know some things about grief. But even when we study it, we can't say for sure what kind of housemate it's going to be when it moves in to our house. This was particularly true for Megan Riordan Jarvis, a trauma-informed psychotherapist with over 20 years of clinical experience. When her mother died suddenly, just two years after her dad had died of cancer, Megan's professional knowledge wasn't enough to keep her from experiencing intense PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. What her training did afford her, though, was the ability to recognize that she was developing PTSD and that she really needed help. Megan recently released a new book about this experience. It's called End of the Hour, A Therapist's Memoir, and it chronicles the life events that led up to her developing PTSD and the avenues she took to get treatment. If Megan sounds familiar, it means you're either a longtime listener of this show or you follow other griefy podcasts, including Megan's own podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle. Megan was a guest on Grief Out Loud back in 2022, So if you missed that one, be sure to check out episode 222. Megan, thank you for coming back on Grief Out Loud. This is take two for our interviews together. 
I am so delighted to be back. Our first interview was one of my favorites, and I am really looking forward to talking to you again today. Well, I know we're going to be talking uh, quite a bit about your book that is newly out on November 14th called End of the Hour, A Therapist Memoir. But for listeners who didn't catch our first interview, can you give a short overview of how you came to write this particular book? Sure. So I am a trauma-informed therapist, trauma-trained in Washington, D.C. I've worked clinically for about 20 years with people who are struggling, I would say, with the pain of some sort of loss. So I specialize in grief and loss, and I've done that for a long time, partly because I had a significant childhood loss, and I just felt drawn to that work. And in 2016, my dad was diagnosed with small cell cancer, and after about a year, he died of cancer. And then in 2019, my mom died suddenly while I was on vacation with her. And sort of maybe the unique, although not unique, experience that I had with those two back-to-back losses is they sort of triggered some unresolved grief and loss from that childhood experience. And I got really sick with PTSD very fast. And I had that, what I call sort of observing ego, like the metacognition of watching my body begin to have these symptoms that I have treated for decades and knew it was like seeing a tsunami on the horizon. Like I knew I wasn't going to get out without some really significant intervention. And ultimately I checked myself into the same inpatient facility that I send all of my most complicated cases and received the same treatment there. And when I came out the other side, I really wasn't interested in talk therapy, but I was doing a tremendous amount of writing, mostly journal entries. I sort of found a favorite journal and a favorite pen and did a lot of writing. And it was so helpful and supportive for me because what it meant was I was taking some of the PTSD images, some of the ruminations I was having, and recording them so that my brain almost like trusted that it was okay for me not to think about them so much because they'd been written down on a page. The story is written with all of my grieving clients in mind, everything they've ever told me, the fights that they got in with family members, the way that they were distracted and accidentally, you know, fed the turkey to the cat And the way that they couldn't go back to their jobs or the way they couldn't sleep or couldn't, everything that was true in their lives turned out to be true in my life in some way. And so part of the book really is kind of like a love letter to all the people that I've worked with to let them know, I think I intellectually understood it then, but I have an embodied understanding of that kind of profound loss that they came to get support from me with, which I think they got. But certainly people who come to see me now, they feel a different kind of empathy because I get it differently now. Well, when I was reading your book, you know, you think about this idea of the event happens, the reaction and the response build, you go to treatment, and then you think, oh, treatment is over. And then to think like the writing of the book was the continuation of the treatment and the healing and then becomes this product to support others. So just yeah, sitting with that kind of ongoing nature that it's not just a stop and start sort of situation. The other thing I'm thinking about is there can be this resistance for folks who are grieving to let go of particular emotions or let go of particular experiences. 
from this fear that it could also mean, oh, I'm letting go of my person who died if I don't have these ongoing really painful memories or this emotion that's really maybe injurious to myself, but that's how I stay connected. And now you, as someone who's gone through and done so much therapeutic work through your grief, what's your current relationship to memories of your parents? That's such a good question. And it's a thing that I would say is like still ongoing and evolving. So I know that you know that there are grief theories that are out there that sort of one of them continuing bonds is this idea that we kind of transfer the living relationship into a different kind of relationship. Now you can say you have a relationship with a memory or that you're having still a living relationship, but that you are, you know, speaking for and thinking for your deceased. I have found all that super tricky. So I didn't have a hard time letting go of um, the emotion of it because most of the way that the emotion, it, it was like being in a speeding car, Like I understood that the speeding car was on account of this terrible traumatic thing that happened. And I want to pause here just to say, because I think this is important. The way my mother died was in her bed, in her sleep, in her favorite pajamas, holding her rosary. So my mother did not have a traumatic death. I had a traumatic experience with her death. And I just, I think that can be really confusing for people. Like they can only have a really strong reaction if someone was violently murdered. I mean, my mother was an old lady who died in her sleep. It's the kind of death everybody wants, but the way that that landed in my system was totally traumatic. And so most of how that felt to me was like, as if someone plugged me in and I was, I had like a hum, a a refrigerator hum at all times. And sometimes it felt like a buzzing light bulb. And sometimes it felt like an electrical storm. Most of what I worked through was was turning that knob down. And I never felt like that was a great testimony to the relationship I had with my mom or my dad, that I was so physically dysregulated. I never wanted that. I never think I never thought that they would have wanted it. And to be honest, I mostly found it kind of embarrassing. I didn't find it like a tremendous testimony to them. And when I was in treatment, actually, one of the treatment providers said that, like, isn't this an incredible testimony to how much you loved your mother that you got sick? And I knew what she meant, but I was like, that is not the kind of That is not the kind of award my mother would have wanted. This would have been so hard for her. But I do find myself, and I think about the Rabbi Steve Leader all the time. I adore him. I do find myself doing what he says, which is looking at the world through their eyes. My mom really loved the fall and our leaves are falling right now. She really loved birds. She really loved gardening. And and we just got a dog. So I'm outside more. And I do really find myself being like, mom, look, there's a, you know, a cardinal over there or, oh, look, they put in a bird bath or I do find myself sort of almost inadvertently talking to her. But I got to tell you, Jana, it's taken me a really long time. So even though I know the theory and even though I know it is um, important, I think part of why it's been hard is that I still have these little PTSD slivers and my PTSD mostly was that I really believed it was my fault she died, even though I knew it wasn't. There was just a very strong part of me that really deeply believed it. And that 
sort of illness of thinking still exists inside my system. I still have to fight against it. And so I think there is a part of me that has a hard time keeping my mother in mind and having a conversation with her because I do still feel sometimes some days when it's, when it's harder and not easy, like I owed her something that I didn't give her. Do you have a sense, Megan, because I'm, I'm thinking of listeners tuning in who might be like, ooh, I carry that same, like, seemingly illogical yeah. sense of responsibility of like, it was my fault, I should have done something. And you have a sense of like, the origin of that. And, and then my second question around that, like, is it helpful to identify the origin? Or is it more just like, how do we mitigate this response? Uh, and that doesn't really matter where it came from. No, it's, that's a great question. And I don't, I don't know like the clinical answer, but I can answer it for myself, which is so that the clinical term for that is a rumination and a rumination. If you think about a rumination, it's like piglet and poo walking around the tree, scaring themselves by their own footprints. A rumination has no productivity. If you're worried about something, oh, I'm worried that my tires need to be changed thinking about your tires is probably going to help you make an appointment to change your tires. Ruminations are, there are various different kinds. I write about this in my clinical book. It's written about by Mary Frances O'Connor and Tracy Shores in really great ways. So if people want more information, those are two wonderful people to go and look at. But essentially a rumination is a distraction. It's there to like sleight of hand, like a magician, like Come over here and be intellectually distracted by constantly checking. It's it's obsessive, constantly checking in with this. And so for me, mine was constantly checking in with intolerable images and this belief that I should have done something differently that so that my mother didn't die. And what was incredible about it is like I impaneled a bunch of doctors to go over her medical chart because I felt so overwhelmed by the idea that something was missed. The doctors did that and they decided that most likely she had died of a bleeding ulcer. Now, I don't know if that's true because we didn't do an autopsy, but three out of the four doctors believed it was that this was a standard presentation. And guess what? They don't catch bleeding ulcers. They're like really hard in an emergency room that based on my mother's presentation, all of the doctors were like, I probably would have missed this. She would have bled out. She would have died no matter what. And so once they gave me that, my mind popped to a totally different idea of what I should have done differently. So it wasn't that she didn't get exactly the right medical care. It's that I shouldn't have made her come to Maine with me the week before, and she maybe would have gotten. I mean, so ruminations are really doing a job for you. And and I think about them in an IFS way. Dick Schwartz talks about different ways that your mind comes up with to protect you. If you think about alcoholism, alcoholism is is one way, a part of you that can exist in order to distract you from hard feelings. That's a very extreme example. But a rumination, I mean, boy, what it distracted me from was I'm going to have to figure out how to live without my mother. And what it offered me was relentlessly is you can just blame yourself for the rest of your life. You'll feel miserable, but it won't be the kind of misery which is like existentially sort of terrifying and dysregulating. 
So I do think we don't talk about ruminations a lot. I think there's a lot about rumination that can be, you know, if you talk to people who've had suicidal ideation, ruminations are in there. We, and, and if you talk to people who have OCD, ruminations are in there. So I think we, as sort of a culture, don't understand how problematic they can be. But as a clinician, it is one of the things that I ask. And it is one of the things that I use as a diagnostic. And I'm not trying to pretend that other people do this, but if someone says to me that they have relentless thoughts that battered, you know, that, that do not quiet, that usually does mean to me that we're going to be doing some more significant intervention to try to quiet the brain down and naming, listen, your mind wants you to think about this because this is actually simpler. The other piece is your mind is always trying to protect you. It So if something really catastrophic happens, it wants to code all that data so that nothing like that ever happens to you again. So there is, even when it's not a rumination, that's a PTSD rumination, your mind is going to double check, triple check all that information so that it codes it so that if in the future we see any of that again, we try to avoid it. Yeah, we see that with kids so much when they're like, well, it's because I wore the red shirt today, or it's because I put my hair back in a ponytail. And if I never do that again, nothing bad will ever happen. Yeah, all that magical thinking, which makes perfect sense when you're a kid, because how can they understand a world that has, you know, such profound devastation? And it seems like even for you and us as adults, how do we understand a world that has so much profound devastation? And I wonder sometimes if adults can get caught in thinking, I should be able to hold this, you know, the bigger existential piece that you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, what was so interesting for me is that my mind was really alert. So like my clinical mind was like, oh, this is a rumination. This is what it's for. This is what it's doing. But having the intellectual understanding and knowledge of what it was and what it was doing did not stop it from happening, which was unbearably humbling. You know, I still needed the treatments. I still needed EMDR. I still needed meditation. I still needed to move my body. I still needed to get nourishment and rest in all the ways that are so important when your central nervous system is dysregulated. And Megan, what's your sense? Because your dad died a few years before your mom, but it was really after your mother's death that the PTSD really kicked up. Like, what's your sense of what, of why that happened of one versus the other? Such a good question. So I have this little cartoon that an artist drew for me about like what traumatic loss feels like versus loss that you are anticipating. So with my dad, I I have this image of like every week he was dying of cancer. Most weekends I would fly up to see him and sit with him in his rehab hospital where he was mostly doing hospice. And it was like, I would drink one cup of grief, you know, and, and that he and I would have these conversations and we were kind of co-creating where we were losing each other and he was dying and I was not dying. Also, my dad was a person that I spoke to regularly, but not every day. So I had, you know, and I didn't need him for a lot of things. With my mom, it was more like drinking two gallons of grief in one minute you know, and it made my body sick really fast. It was too much for my mind to take in. It was too impossible to believe. I called my mom every day. And so I do think that, 
you know, with my dad, I had maybe more of a healthy distance. I had done a lot of separation from him and, and I think probably underlying my relationship with my mom. And I talk about it in the memoir is that there was more codependence, more wanting to be a person in her life that made her life easier and wanting her approval and just it in general, not knowing which things were in my life a hundred percent because I desired them versus which things were maybe in my life because I think she would have thought they were good. And I had this moment. It's not, I, I wrote about it, but it's not in the memoir. I don't think of like, I was, I had just had this crazy ear, ear surgery and I was sitting on my couch and I was like kind of stoned on the pain medicine. And I looked up at my mantelpiece and my mantelpiece above my fireplace had like shells from her peak, from her beach, a picture of the view from her beach, candlesticks that she had bought me, like, you know, another hurricane lamp, all the things. And I was like, do I even like those things? Are those things, would I have chosen them if she didn't? And so I think that's part of it. There is this identity thing that happens when you lose someone who is, you are profoundly attached to, and it is for a while really confusing of like, who am I even without them? So I think there's that, but I also think with my mom, I really did have a, like some of the way that I live my life is almost predicated on wanting her to be happy about it. And I didn't have that with my dad. My dad and I had years of me just sort of being like, shut up, old man. I don't need your opinion. Um, And it's not that my mom and I had the easiest of relationships of all time. We actually, when I was in my twenties, it was pretty sticky. Like I found her really difficult and she found me really difficult, but we we were in this sweet spot. There was something about me having children that made me so much more relatable to her. Her full-time job, you know, sort of starting at the age of 21 was raising kids and so we just had an easier time together. And I really was not even close to done. I'm still not close to done with, you know, being two grown women raising children together. I don't know if this image fits or not, but as you were talking about the difference between, you know, when your dad died versus your mom died, I was picturing like someone wearing a shirt and then like a flannel shirt over that that shirt. And then when that person dies, the flannel shirt comes off versus being a sweater that's knitted together. And when your mom died, it was like half the sweater got unraveled and you're left with this shreds of a sweater. And like, it's not a full sweater anymore. Yeah. I mean, what I found unbearable and it's, it's in the book is like, I couldn't be around people who knew me. Because I just was like, I am not that person. The per- the person, I don't know who I am. I don't know if I'm reliable. I don't, because I didn't, I mean, I was so dysregulated. I was angry at everyone all the time. I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping. And I still looked like a human, right? I still had clothes on. I mostly was still showering. Um, I could still formulate words. And I I really didn't flip out on too many people too many times. So I do actually, with the people who are close to me, I they have read this book and and many of them have come back and said like, oh my God, I had no idea how bad it was. And it's not like I was hiding it. I didn't have the energy to hide it. It's just hard to see. So yeah, I really like that image of like a sweater that falls apart because it's not like I can continue to wear it. You know, I, I had to figure something else out. And for a while I did feel wholly naked 
um, in front of people who knew me, I found it much easier to be around people who'd never met me before. My One of my sons started a new soccer team and I, it was like a different school, different parents. None of them had ever met me, but I, but I will tell you, I remember the day because I, we did know the coach. That's how we got on that team. And I remember the day the coach looked at me and I was like, oh, he knows, he knows. And then it was like, the jig is up. I can't just like pretend to be a person, a shell of a person that's like, you know, faking it. He kind of knows that it's all not okay. It's interesting being a reader of your book because reading through it, it was very clear to me how not okay you were in the world. And so to hear that people who were existing with you, coexisting with you, couldn't see it as much. But in your book, you do a fantastic job of really laying out like how uh, dysregulated and unmoored you were. Yeah, I mean, that that is probably the gift of having a really great editor. Um, there are some chapters in there that were incredibly hard to write. I couldn't even pull them from my memory. There's this, a scene where we're driving away after my mom dies. And that's probably the last scene I wrote because I just couldn't even remember it. And then one day, um, Lisa Shulman, who's a, who's a neurologist, she was like, just keep writing, just keep writing. The memories are there. You were there. And just like one day. I could remember what happened. And a really fantastic editor, um, Carolyn Murnick, said, you have to give us an entire tour of what is going on inside of you, an entire tour, because that is, we need to see that from your side. Because really what I wanted to say was like, well, it looked like this, but it felt like this. And she was like, that doesn't matter. So I think if you did an interview with my children or my husband, I mean, my husband knew, my husband knew, my best friend knew, some colleagues knew, some of my siblings knew. I, I mean, I, I stopped being able to say words. I, I couldn't, I was getting sicker and not better, but my neighbors did not know. And, you know, many of my friends, because I had clothes on and I would say, sure, you can come over for, you know, a few minutes. They didn't know that I hadn't left my porch physically for an entire month because why would they know that? And I knew enough not to tell them. I didn't know enough to sort of keep it a little bit under wraps. I didn't have shame about it. I just wasn't sure what I was doing about it yet. I just wasn't sure what my plan was for, for a while there. I was like, well, if I get enough therapy, like if I set up, cause that's the deal with therapy. It's like, well, if you can treat your symptoms with outpatient treatment, then great. Then you can stay outpatient, but we call it the next level of care. If that doesn't work, you got to go to the next level of care. And it's not like there's nine, there's not nine options. And so I, I just hadn't really decided what I was doing next. And so it was a big jump for some people to be like, oh, thank you for the spaghetti you brought me. And tomorrow I'm going to fly to Tennessee and check myself into an inpatient facility and I'll be gone for three weeks at a minimum. For some people, they were like, wait a minute, what? Um, and I, you know, again, I just didn't have, I, I couldn't translate myself to people at that time. I could kind of only be exactly as I was, which also, you know, I look back at that. I look back at myself and there are some things that people have said to me and I'm like, wow, I don't remember that at all. Like, I don't, I didn't know that happened. I didn't, I, I didn't code that piece of information. But when I look back at myself, I do see a person who was a little bit masking 
some of what was going on because I, I ultimately really understood that I was going to have to make the, the, the person who was the best equipped, even in my really fragile mental state was still me about what to do about my own mental health. I paired up with some really wonderful, incredible clinicians, but really it was still me who had to say, all right, let's do it. You alluded at the beginning to, you know, some of the the symptoms and the signs that were building and continuing to accelerate when you were like, okay, now it's time to move from me trying to do the own the stuff I tell my clients to do for myself, like I need the next level of care. What were some of those sort of signs and symptoms that helped you make that decision? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a good thing to tell people because, again, because we don't have core grief education, right? Like knowing that when little girls get their periods, they might also get a hormonal headache. Like telling them that is helpful because then they're like, oh, I have this. It's not I'm not dehydrated. I have this because of hormones. So I think the primary that one of the first symptoms that I had was I felt really spacey. So I had some dissociation that started kind of early maybe even like a day after my mom's, I was pretty sharp. I was pretty adrenaline running in the beginning when I, when you have to do all the things. Um, But there's a scene where I go to CVS and I am trying to dispose of her pills. And that is a really cloudy, like this old lady helps me. And we took the line out because it was a little confusing, but honestly, I'm not even sure there was an old lady. Like, I don't know if I didn't dream her up. So that was the first thing where I was like a little spacey and I couldn't remember like whether the, whether that person had come to see us when my dad died or whether my mom died. Like I just, the clarity of thought started to really go first. And then I had really low muscle tone. So my torso, I like needed help. I, I, I There's some movie that I can see in my mind where Steve Martin must get hit by like a tranquilizing dart and then he's flopping his torso around. That's what it felt like, Jenna. I just did not have the muscle tone to move my body myself. And so doing things like getting in and out of cars, I just was like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. And then I would do it. And I wasn't really sure how, or I would look at the shower and be like, I don't think I can take my clothes off, get in the shower and get out of the shower and put clothes on. So those, those were the two primary ones. And then just relentless sleep interruption. I, in the beginning, both with my dad and my mom, I had much worse, um, with my dad, I had really, really terrible nightmares about him and his death and like things that were non-existent and unresolved. So I'm not really sure what the purpose of those nightmares were and they did eventually resolve, but the sleeping was really hard. And with my mom, I just didn't sleep more than two to three hours at a time. And most of the time would wake up at three 30 in the morning and be awake, you know, and then I'd be awake till about seven 30 when my kids would go to school and then sleep for a couple of hours, and then be awake and sleep. And and the last symptom, which still exists for me, is I find it really hard to eat. So I what I'm what is interesting to me now, even though I do so much body-centered work every single day, is it is a little bit like, oh, that sweater. I, I often call it a hard my MM shell, like my hard candy coating, like it's not coming back. I'm not getting re-dipped so that the you know. So I kind of get a little melty pretty easily. And so keeping my body in regulation is tricky. 
And the thing that I know when I'm not in regulation is I just have no hunger. I can go days and days without eating. And when I say without eating, what I mean is I cannot eat. I can't bring myself to eat. So I have foods that I have um, committed to eating that are nutrient dense and they're smoothies and things. So like I keep, I have people that are working on it with me. Um, So I keep myself healthy enough, but I, the, the history that I had around maybe food way back and the experience that I'm having with food now, I think must be partnered. And I think it's just another piece of trauma work that some days I'm like, I'm going to get a handle on it. And other days I'm like, this might just be how this goes. This might just be my relationship with having a system that turns down those cues really quickly. Yeah. Like not having an appetite for food, for movement, for engagement in certain things. Yeah. And of course, like I know all the neuroscience about, you know, what, how does that happen? How does, what, what is going on in your brain it, you know, it means that part of your brain is enlarging and it's sort of cutting off signals to other parts of your brain that would then allow you to have natural hunger. So I get that there's a sort of a problem going on, but we don't have a pill for that problem. And if there was a pill for that problem, I've tried it and it didn't work for me. It kind of reminds me of when you're in a building and the fire alarm goes off, you know, and all you can hear is the fire alarm. There's no like, oh, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry or I've got a little like of a twinge in my shoulder. It's just like, and I'm picturing like, that's what can happen in in someone's mind is some other signal becomes so loud. It just drowns out everything else. Yeah. And that's such a good, I love that analogy. I'm going to think on that one. What, what it makes me think about is that particularly after my mom died, but, but to some degree after my dad died as well, I was just really reactive. I was really angry. And I knew from other therapy not grief related therapy that when i get really angry it's not about anger it's almost like that same thing that a rumination does anger is just a distraction so if i would find myself in a moment like ready to just tear somebody a new one i would off i often will stop and say like oh my god i know this is i'm not i know i'm not really angry i'm actually afraid fear is what drives me to that really extreme anger reaction and i do the similar thing with food if I miss two meals in a row because I forgot to eat them, and I just want to say this because I think maybe your audience is like, wow, she must weigh a hundred pounds. I have made, uh, when your body is dysregulated, that's not how that works. So I've actually gained weight in the process of eating much less. Um, so again, I just want to say that because that's normal. Your body, when it ends up sort of starving itself, holds on to calories. It doesn't, I mean, it drops them maybe in the beginning. But I have now learned that if I go a couple of days without eating in a regular way to be curious about what is dysregulating me and to ask maybe even first, is there some unresolved sadness? You know, I do what everybody does, which is I get a catch in my throat. I feel sad about something and then I don't go back for it later. You know, I compose myself in the moment. This happened a lot when I was doing the audio book for end of the hour. You know, you got to read it. And I would get really emotional and then compose myself and then finish reading it. And after three days of that, I spent like, I don't know, 10 hours crying because I was like, I I had that sorrowful reaction. I can't keep it inside my system. I have to get it out. And I watched some reliable movies that I have that helped me cry in order to make that happen. (laughs) What's one of those? Terms of Endearment. 
just kills me. It's and actually Terms of Endearment and also Shadowlands. These are movies from the 90s, but in both of them, the actress Deborah Winger, who no one young will know because she's not still acting, dies of cancer in both of them. One, she plays C.S. Lewis's wife. One, she plays, I think it's Jeff Bridges' wife, but they're just really sad to me. They're just, you know, young person cut off in the prime of their life is just too heartbreaking. And what I'll say about dysregulation also is that I can be equally as dysregulated by something extraordinary. I sat through the Eras movie, Taylor Swift's Eras movie, weeping the entire time, just weeping, weeping because it's been a hard time in the world. And so watching joyful music full of color that has all these eighth graders in a theater singing at the top of their lungs was so needed um, and, you know, say what you want. Taylor Swift is really talented and she's beautiful <laughs> and she's an extraordinary dancer. And it was just overwhelming to see all those people inside the stadium. And then you knew there was like another, you know, few thousand outside the stadium watching her perform in this extreme way. But I can be I can be brought to tears by the national anthem. I can be brought to tears by a standing ovation. I can be brought to tears by my kids being nice to each other. I I can get overwhelmed by hard, but I can also be overwhelmed by just ex- really extreme beauty and intimacy really just as quickly. One of the things I think about a lot, especially in my role, because I listen to so many people talk about their experience of grief and the things that they regret or the things they wish they would have done differently. And I have this false narrative that I'm like, oh, if I just follow all their advice, you know, when this kind of grief comes for me, somehow I'll be protected, which I know is not real. But in reading your book, one of the things that stood out is from a very young age, you had this crushing sense of responsibility. It seemed like anything went awry in your sphere and you were like, oh, that's my fault. And, you know, obviously that played a role in the development of your PTSD uh, with your mom's death. I'm just curious if you, looking back, is like, oh, is there something I, if I had shifted that, that would have turned out differently? Or are there suggestions that you have for folks who are also carrying that really, like, overwhelming sense of responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, without without being clinical, too clinical about it, what I would say is there are a multitude of ways that one can end up feeling responsibility as a child inside a family. Usually... There's, you know, it's a little bit of like, well, there's smoke, there's fire. Like, usually it means something isn't going right somewhere. Because children should believe that parents are in charge and parents are taking care of you. And, you know, one of the one of the impacts of having a teenager die when you're nine is that kind of blows that out of the water. I remember standing in in my in the hallway of like my fifth grade classroom and these two boys were going to fight and they were saying stuff like my dad's bigger than your dad. And I'm like, how is, how are our dads relevant at all? Like they don't even keep us safe. Like they can't. So, you know, I know as a clinician, things like if you have parents who have addiction issues or mental health issues, but certainly having an, you know, a death that is never spoken about, you don't have to call that a mental health issue, but it's sort of like a system-wide trauma. And I just, we never talked about it. So the little nine-year-old in me was just sort of like, well, I'm going to do the best I can to make sure nothing bad ever happens to our family again. And of course, at nearly 50, I look at that and I'm like, how did, how did anyone let me do those things? 
Oh, and Megan, I just want to say for listeners, this is the death of your friend Chris, who drowned when he was a teenager and you were nine. Yeah. So the book opens with this, that he's 16 and I'm nine and he's beloved by sort of everyone in the town. And it's a summer community. So it's pretty easy to go from the summer community back to where I was raised on a a sort of in farm country in Massachusetts. Nobody knew the story there. And so it was easy for me to not talk about it. And it seemed like people weren't supposed to talk about it, but it didn't mean I didn't have feeling about it. And my mom was present when Chris's body was taken out of the water. And so she, what she had PTSD from that, as I think anyone would, she responded to that by crying at night, which I heard and scared the crap out of me. But like, I never told her I knew she was crying. We didn't talk about it until I was like in my thirties, but she really did have PTSD and it went untreated. And then sort of the vicarious trauma to me is that she did not seem okay. And we had a lot of kids in my family, like there were six kids. We had a lot of stuff to do. And I just, it seemed reasonable to try to help. It just seemed reasonable. And the thing is, when you try to help and you are kind of smart and able, is you are helpful. And then that feels good. And then people are like, hey, can you help? Because you were helping before. Can you help? And it's like, sure, I can help. And so that parentified version of being a kid was something that, you know, I didn't know existed. I didn't know that other people didn't do that. I didn't really know until I stepped into a therapist's office and she was like, wait a minute, what? You know, you were babysitting your other siblings while your parents were out of the country when you were 12 years old. What are you talking about? And I was like, now that now that you say it, maybe that that wasn't the best idea ever. I know we're coming toward it to the end of our time together, but this just popped into my head when you were talking about like, you know, as a kid, you saw a need, you tried to help, you were helpful, people gave you accolades for that and put more responsibility on you. What's your relationship to helping now as a therapist who's writing helpful memoirs in the world? Oh, Jana, that's a good question. I could be here all day. Um, it's a right. It's a struggle, like becoming sort of a people pleaser as a. I'm an Enneagram too, you know. As a as a way of navigating the world is really, 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 really difficult when you become traumatized, because when your body and mind need all of the energy and all of the care that you have for itself. It's a little bit like, oh, you've been doling out charity money to all of these folks who are buying their breakfast with it because they're hungry. And that feels great to give them your, you know, you don't need it. But then if you need it, it feels awful to look at people and be like, I'm so sorry, I can't give you money for breakfast. I am so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry I made you reliant on me for breakfast. So I would love to do the thing that I think we like, which is like, oh, it's a hero's journey. Like I am recovered and all, but I have relationships that are still recovering from this, that I, I sat down with a friend the other day. I don't think she'd mind me saying this because we have talked about it, but really what she said was, so when are you going to be back? And I was like, wait a minute, what? It's been four years. You're still waiting. Like I didn't, I knew I wasn't ever coming back. I thought I told you that, but you know, when people really like a version of you, they're going to wait for that version to come back. Right. That's how people stay in marriages for 10 years. They want the guy that they married to be the you know guy that they have now. 
So it's a struggle. It's really hard. It's really hard to put myself in the, you know, the person who gets to serve myself first. And sometimes it's okay to not do that. But I do a lot of like checking in with people. I check with my husband. I check in with my best friend and I'm like, this is what I'm thinking I'm going to do. What do you think about that? And they kind of, and my sister as well, they kind of know like, Maybe Megan can't totally be trusted because she has this old way of functioning inside her system. But I will tell you, God, I miss being that person. I miss being the person that people look to as like pulled together and able and capable and the person you would rely on in a in a pinch. I'm not that person. <laughs> I don't mean I'm like a scatterbrain and you couldn't rely on me. Uh, but I am somebody who would maybe check in with it. I wouldn't give you an instant yes. I would have to. And, and a nice example is my husband is out of town. And when my husband used to go out of town, he used to go out of town when our, their babies were little for like three weeks at a time. And when I think about that now, I'm like, how did anyone survive? Because our life is predicated on two parents working as hard as we possibly can to keep these children like fed and clothed. The kids are older now. They're they're 15, 13, and 11. So they do a lot of stuff on their own. But my husband went out of town and he handed me this list because I used to do the things. One of the things that happened when I went to treatment is now he does all the things. I like that better. Um, he's better at it. He handed me this list of like, this one goes to tennis on this day. This one goes to, you know, physical therapy on this day. This one. And I looked at it and was like, yeah, we're not doing all this stuff. Like, <laughs> that's what I said out loud. Like, baby, I'm just, I'm just aiming for a B minus. And I don't feel bad about that. So one of the strengths that I would say is that I understand that a B minus is really good grade. Nobody's looking at my grades. My kids understand that a B minus is really good in terms of like functioning and that it would cost me to try to get an A. It would cost me that I maybe used to function at an A or made it look like I functioned at an A. I'm not even trying to do that anymore. Here's cheers to B minuses. Right, B minus. Across the board. <laughs> totally passing great, okay? Totally passing great. Well, Megan, as we do come to the end of our time together, I know your book is hitting the, whatever you call it, the stands these days, November 14th, 2023. And listeners, this episode may or may not be out before or after November 14th. Um, where else can people find you, connect with you? Sure. Yeah. So I have a website. If people have questions, both myself and my business partner, Julianne, were really responsive to DMs and all of that. So you can find me on Instagram. That's a great place. I put a lot on LinkedIn because we do a lot of corporate um, support for companies that are struggling with grief and loss in the workplace. My website is just my name, Megan Reardon Jarvis. You'll have to look at the episode to look at the spelling because nothing, you know, there's extra letters in all the places that you don't want them to be. Um, and honestly, if you Google my name, you know, there, I don't think there's another Megan Reardon Jarvis out there that, you know, is doing grief work. So you'll find me really easily and just feel free, feel, feel free to reach out. Um, you know, just this morning I woke up to someone I didn't even really know in high school, sent me the most beautiful DM saying that he's been, his father's been dying and that he did die this weekend, but that he felt more prepared because he had been listening to grief is my side hustle podcast and, listening to, you know, all the people that I have on the podcast, looking into their work and just becoming grief informed. And I just thought, you know, that's what we're trying to do over here. So if people have questions, reach out. I love it. And we're pretty good at responding. 
And yeah, listeners, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. You can find Megan. And yeah, Megan, congratulations on the new book, End of the Hour, A Therapist Memoir. Thank you for taking time to be on the show today. It's always great to connect with you. I'm so grateful to be here. I just love this show. You do such a good job of bringing the important parts of the stories to the forefront so that everybody can benefit from them. So thanks for having me. Really grateful. And listeners, I say it each and every single time. Thank you for being part of the show, being part of our community. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That's also our main website where you can find information about our local programming, all of our free downloadable resources, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. Always excited to share that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. 